Last week, I got to celebrate my favorite hockey team winning the Stanley Cup for the first time in 21 years. It was really fun for me to watch. I've been following this team ever since I was a kid. I kind of felt like a kid again watching them watch. I had to really restrain myself so that my wife wouldn't lose all respect for me. But what was interesting is after I watched them win the Stanley Cup, as you know, as it goes with any sport, there's obviously a lot of emotion involved from fans and players. And as the players were holding up the cup and their their families come on the ice and they're crying and they're, it's just so emotional. And for someone like my wife, who's not really into sports, this was kind of uncomfortable. It was kind of weird. Like, why are they so emotional? And uh, to her credit, she probably is right. We probably do invest a little too much into sports than we should. But a part of that is because the Stanley Cup is the point of it all. That's, that's what these men are working so hard for. I mean, that is the ultimate goal that they're trying to achieve and not everybody achieve it. In fact, very few people achieve it. And so the implication is it's difficult to imagine even watching a hockey season without a Stanley Cup, right? Like imagine they say, we're going to play hockey this year, but no playoffs and no Stanley Cup. I wonder how excited the players would be to play. I wonder how excited we would be to watch. I mean, what's the point? Why would I work so hard? Why would I take so much time away from my family? It's hard to do the things that we're supposed to do if we don't have some kind of conception of what it's all about. Like, what are we working toward? Where are we going? Why are we doing the same things day in and day out if we don't know what direction we're headed? And this question is not just relevant for hockey players, believe it or not. It's actually infinitely more relevant for us as Christians. What's the goal after our baptism? We've been baptized, now what? Right? What are we working towards? Why do we continue to pray? Why do we keep coming to church? Why do we keep up this fight with sin every single day? Like, what are we working toward? What's the Christian Stanley Cup? And the Apostle Paul, I think, is going to give us an answer to this question today. We could probably work it so that there's more than one answer to this question. But he's going to give us an important answer to this question today. Paul is going to pray on behalf of the Ephesians. And he's going to ask God to get this church somewhere. He's going to ask God to to bring this church to something. And so in this prayer, we get a glimpse of what Paul sees as the goal of the Christian life. What are we working toward? If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And I would invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We will read verses 14 through 19. For thus says the Lord, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? 
as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, Paul in verse 14 is actually picking up on a thought he began a long time ago. He began in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then we discussed over the last couple weeks how his train of thought was broken and he kind of chased a Holy Spirit inspired rabbit trail. And now he's getting back to that for this reason. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. For this reason, okay, for this reason what? I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on earth is named. So Paul prays to the sovereign Father. He turns his eyes, he most likely literally, but maybe just symbolically, he gets on his knees and he lifts his faith to the sovereign creator of all things. And he prays a very bold prayer on behalf of the Ephesians. Because, as he'd just been discussing for so long, because these Ephesians are equal members in the household of God, because they are not second-class citizens, because they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ of an equal standing in the kingdom of God, Paul turns and gets on his knees and he prays to God the boldest of prayers. As a matter of fact, one scholar, J.A. Robinson, actually is on record saying that no prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. I'm not, I don't know if he's being hyperbolic or literal, not sure if I could necessarily agree with that. But he's getting at something here. This is one of the boldest prayers I have ever read. And by the way, Paul is actually trying to express the severity and the boldness of his prayer by mentioning his, prop, his posture, right? He doesn't just say, I pray. He says, I bow my knees. The reason this is so intense is because for the ancient Jewish culture, uh, prayer was actually most often signified by standing. Uh, Jewish men, for tradition and custom, was to stand and lift their hands. Paul even mentions this in one of his epistles to Timothy. Let the men pray lifting holy hands. The typical posture for prayer, you know, every culture sort of has theirs. You know, we teach our kids to, to bow their heads and close their eyes and put their hands together, right? We kind of have this stereotypical. For, for, for the Jewish men, the stereotypical prayer was to stand and raise their hands. So Paul is really going sort of countercultural by saying, I'm not standing before God. I'm kneeling before. I'm bowing before him. He's expressing, no, this, this, is, a, this is an important and sacred prayer. I am, I am on my knees begging God for this. Paul prays a very, very bold prayer on their behalf. So what is this bold prayer? What is it that Paul is asking God to do on behalf of the Ephesians? Now, if we were to just look at it from surface level, it's multifaceted. He doesn't just ask for one thing. But I think that in a sense he does. Paul really is asking for one thing particularly but he knows that there are other things that have to happen before we can get to that one thing, right? So he prays for multiple things, but it's all with that one final thing involved. It would be similar to saying, like, let's say I had a niece in Iowa, and I said, I pray, God, that she, my niece would visit me. And Layla said, well, she doesn't have a license. I say, okay, I, I pray that my niece would get a license so that she can visit me. And Layla says, but she doesn't have a car. Okay, I pray that my niece would get her license and then get a car so that she could visit me. That's what Paul's doing. He's got something ultimate in mind here, but he understands that there are steps that need to be taken. So he prays for this big ultimate thing, but he also prays for all the little things that have to happen before that. And so that's why we're going to, to some degree, work backward through the text today. We're going to see what is it that Paul ultimately wants for us. 
what does it look like to hold up our cup? And then we're going to go back and see all the steps that need to happen before that event. So what is this bold request? What does Paul desire for all true Christians? Look with me at the very end of verse 19, the second half of verse 19. The ESV renders it, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the goal. That's why you wake up in the morning. The old expression is, this is what we train for. This is what it's all about. Why are you living a faithful life every day? Why do you get out of bed every morning? Why are you trying to strengthen your prayer life? Why are you trying to read your Bible more? Why are we putting so much work into this hard Christian life? And that's because we have a goal in mind. We want to be filled to the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean? Is Paul saying that you're going to become a God one day? And become a mini-God? Everything that God is, is you? This is a difficult expression to understand, but this is essentially what we mean when we talk about sanctification. What Paul is talking about here is becoming like God. That all of the virtues that God is filled with, Paul wants us to meet those virtues. He wants those virtues to be our virtues. He wants us to be filled until we measure up to God. Paul wants us to be like God. And so the main idea of our sermon today, this bold prayer, what is it that Paul is asking God to do in the Ephesians? And by application, what is Paul's prayer then for us? What's his prayer for Redeemer? And it's this, the goal of the Christian life is to become like God. The privilege of the Christian life is that you get to become like God. Now, as I said, it's kind of a, a bizarre phrase. It's, it's, it's hard for us in our day and age to, to get Paul's metaphor here. And as a matter of fact, as I was studying it, I came to the personal conviction that I, I think the ESV rendered this in a slightly less than helpful way. The ESV says that Paul's ultimate prayer is that you may be filled with the, all the fullness of God. And a lot of translations read this way, so the ESV is not doing something kooky here. But after really diving into it in my studies this week, I really think that the NIV and the NASB uh, translated a little bit better because they say something like that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Because in my studies this week, what I learned is Paul is not actually necessarily talking about God himself filling you. Uh, now, that, with the Holy Spirit, that does happen in a sense. So it's okay to speak like that. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not what the Greek phrase means. God is not necessarily what's filling up in us. But rather, we are being filled up to him. There's a line of measurement and there's a filling in us that takes place that gets us to that line. This is the fullness of God over here and we are being filled up to that measure. So we're not being filled with the fullness of God. We're being filled unto we reach the fullness of God. And I really believe that is what Paul is saying here. And so what is the fullness of God then? What is this standard that we're reaching for? And this is a phrase that means, again, as we said, that all the virtues which fill God, we would live up to that standard. We would be filled in those virtues, so to speak. So in short, we want to be filled up until we become like God. By the way, in case you think maybe I'm stretching, Paul says something extremely similar in this very book. Uh, stay here and look just at chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. 
Obviously, we're going to get to this not too long from now, but let's just briefly look over it from a cursory perspective. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see what Paul's saying there? Christ has set this standard. There's, Christ can be measured. His stature can be measured. And Christ has equipped the church on earth to be built up until we measure up to that standard. So the whole purpose of the Christian church is to become like God. And another way to say that, because Christ is the incarnation of God, another way to say this is to become like Christ. To be measured up to the fullness of God or to measure up to the fullness of the measure of Christ. These are essentially saying the same thing. Paul's goal, his prayer for Christians everywhere, for the Christian church, is that we would become more like Christ. That we would become more like God. Peter reminds us that this is a huge importance to God. In 1 Peter 1.16, quoting from the Old Testament, Peter says this, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is saying, this is what I am like. I am holy, so you should be holy. Here's the standard, and I want you to be filled up until you are like me. Paul's bold prayer for the Ephesians and for all Christians by extension is that their godliness would be made complete. He prays for their, as we say it nowadays, sanctification. That's our Stanley Cup. This is what we're striving for. We get to become like God. And every day, we inch a little bit closer to that goal. And believe it or not, I find this prayer incredibly countercultural, not to our unbelieving culture, to our Christian culture. To the Christian culture, I find this prayer incredibly challenging. And here's why. What do you typically pray for on behalf of your loved ones? What is, when you pray for all of your friends and family, what are you usually praying for? Health? Right? We have a lot of sick people in our lives. We have a lot of people struggling, dying of cancer. We pray for health. We pray for prosperity. They're on hard times. They've lost a job. We want them to do better. Sometimes we pray for their salvation. If they're unbelievers, that's really good. Now, all of these things are good things to pray for. Please don't hear me saying, like, shame on us for praying for health and prosperity. By no means. You should pray. When your family members are sick, pray for them. And, and, when, and when you and your loved ones fall on hard times, pray for them. But I can't help but notice how, even though these are good things to pray for, they tend to be the only things we pray for. And what's interesting is when I read the prayers of Paul throughout the New Testament, he almost never prays for these things. Paul is not nearly as interested in how much money you make as he is in how holy you are. Paul is far less interested that you will overcome your sickness and is far more interested that you will have the sanctification and grace to persevere and endure your sicknesses. How often do we pray for our brothers and sisters that they might be sanctified? God, make them more like yourself by any means necessary. You see, Paul's ultimate heart, again, I'm not saying these other things are bad. They're good things. Come family time, if you have sick family members, let's pray for them. I'm not trying to put that down. 
But I just want to encourage us, how much more should we be concerned, not about the health and prosperity of my loved ones, but about their holiness? To pray more often for perseverance and strength and godliness, just as much as we pray for healing and breakthrough and all of these other things that we pray for. You see, Paul gets on his knees and he begs God, make them more like you. He says nothing about don't let persecution come their way. Don't prosper their church. I want to see it grow. Make them more like you. This should be the heart for all of us towards our brothers and sisters. And we should pray more often for our own sanctification and the sanctification of our church. Why? Because this is the goal of the Christian life. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is not to be healthy, though that's good. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is not to be prosperous, though that's good. The ultimate goal of the Christian life, our Stanley Cup, is not health or prosperity or safe travels or anything like that. The Stanley Cup is God being made more like God. But nonetheless, this, there's a lot of this package that we still have to unpack. Right? Paul being the theologian that he is, he knows how God works sanctification in us. It's not like God just zaps us with a sanctification bolt. There are things that have to take place. There are steps that need to be met if we are ever going to become anything more like God. There are some, I like to call them prerequisites, if you will. You know, you want to take a high-level college class, and they say, whoa, 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 no, no, you can't just jump into that class. There are some other classes you need to take first. That's what's happening here. Paul says, I want these people to graduate right to the top-level class, but I understand they're not ready for that. There's some prerequisites they need to take. So now that we know this ultimate goal, the ultimate goal for Paul is, as in that verse 19, at least in the ESV says, that we would, lost my place, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. We see there's a lot of text here. How do we get there? What are the things God must do in us before he can get us to that point? And so that's what we're going to examine. So you can for the rest of this sermon, we're going to look at three things, three Pauline requests, if you will. What are the other three things that Paul prays for in order to get us to our ultimate goal? And we're going to look at those three things now. And this is the first one, that you will be strengthened by the Spirit. That you will be strengthened by the Spirit. Without the strength of the Holy Spirit, you have no hope of ever becoming godly. We see this in verse 16. Paul says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul asks that we would be strengthened with power from the Holy Spirit. He knows that left to ourselves, we are spiritually weak. We don't have the power to obtain godliness. We need a foreign power we need to be plugged into something that has juice. And so Paul prays that God would give Christians his spirit and the spirit is the power of God and that he would empower them and give them the strength they need to be godly. Now, Paul does not describe this as a feeling, by the way. It's important to clarify that. It's easy to take this kind of metaphoric language and think, wow, so like, I must actually have to feel the Holy Spirit go in me and maybe my stomach gets warm or a burning in my chest. Or... This is not something you'd necessarily feel carnally, physically, corporally. 
But nonetheless, the teaching is true that without the indwelling of the Spirit, without a divine power from God, you do not have the strength to lift up your cup. You can't get there. And so Paul prays for an empowerment from the Holy Spirit by which we can do that which is good and pleasing to God. And he even prays, he gets very specific here. He doesn't just generally pray that the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. He prays that the Holy Spirit would strengthen our inner man. That he would strengthen us to the very core of who we are. That he would produce a holiness deep within us. Not just a false, external, hypocritical holiness, but that we would actually be transformed to the very core of who we are. That the Spirit would be deep, providing power to, to, to our souls and our spirits and our minds. The first thing we need before we ever have hope of becoming godly is we need an empowerment for the Spirit. But the Spirit's strength actually doesn't just leap us right to godliness. At least according to Paul in this text. It's not like power, godliness. There's something else that this strength has to be channeled through, that has to be funneled through in order to produce true godliness. And so Paul not only prays for the power of the Spirit, but he prays for something else incredibly important as well, and that is that you will have faith in Christ. That the Holy Spirit's power will be channeled through a faith in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Stop there. There's a so that. So the Spirit is a necessary prerequisite before Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. Isn't that amazing? Give them the strength of the Spirit so that Christ may dwell. The implication is that without the strength of the Spirit, Christ can't dwell in your heart. The Spirit, this, you, see, you see again how Paul just regularly wants to make sure we are reminded that our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. He did it all throughout chapter 1. He's doing it again. It's a Trinitarian salvation. Faith in Christ is not even the first moment that God begins to work in you. Because there's a prerequisite to faith in Christ. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. In order to have Christ dwell in our hearts, we need the power of the Spirit. But then when we have it, Christ can then dwell in our heart. And what does that mean? Because uh, in, in Scripture, sometimes the word heart can be used to describe different things. It's a metaphor, right? Uh, but the primary way that heart is used in Scripture, and I think it's the way that's being used here, is it's very similar to what he just got done saying in the inner man. That the heart is a symbol of your entire person. The heart is what some call it the seat of your personality. It encompasses your minds, what you believe, and then it combines it with affections, with what you love. Right? In other words, we don't want Christ to just dwell in our minds. We don't want, we don't want just facts about Jesus bouncing around in our head. Because you can believe facts about Christ but still not love him. James makes this very clear in James chapter 2. Oh, you believe in God? So do the demons. Do you know that Satan believes that Jesus died for sins and rose from the dead on the third day? Satan believes that. He saw it. So Satan believes the gospel. But he doesn't believe the gospel. You see the difference? You see, for Paul, faith is a complex word. It's not just what you think. It's when your affections and your knowledge come together. It's what you know and love. 
And so that is why he uses this metaphor of Christ sitting in your heart. He's not just in your mind, though he does have to be there. You can't love the Christ you know nothing about. You need to know true things about Jesus, but that's not enough. He's not seated in your mind. He needs to be seated in your heart. And that's what the strength of the Spirit does. You see, you don't need the Holy Spirit to know facts about Jesus. Jesus can dwell in your mind without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to dwell in your hearts. You need the Holy Spirit to love Christ, to maintain that love for Christ. That is why He dwells, not just our minds, He dwells in our hearts. And I think that there's an important application for us. And, and I say us, I do mean Redeemer, but I mean the broader culture that Redeemer is a part of. Not just the Reformed culture, but right now, as I examine again, I, I bring this up a lot, but it's important. We live in this evangelical world where I have been very critical from this pulpit of the direction that the modern evangelical church is moving. I'm very critical of what I see from some of the bigger churches, but there is a danger in my criticism and if you share it in your criticism, and is this human propensity to overcorrect. We see something we don't like, and so just to not be like that, just to avoid association with that, we overcorrect. And we go too far the other direction. And I think sometimes when we view the kind of silly, happy-clappy, shallow, jump-and-dance-around-shoot-cannons-and-confetti view of church, and we don't like that. So, yeah, I know I want something more sacred. I want something more orderly. And so we, we, we flock to these more confessional churches, these more sacred churches. But in my experience, sometimes we flock a little too far. And we adopt a view of Christianity that essentially looks at all signs of emotion as some kind of postmodern feeling stuff. But Christ has not called us to a passionless Christianity. He has not called us to an emotionless Christianity. And how do I know that? Because Christ is in your hearts. Christ is seated in the deepest part of who you are. He, has, he is not the Lord of your mind. He is the Lord of your affections. And so I would really encourage you, it's okay to be moved by worship. It's okay to have feelings in worship. It's okay to sing a beautiful song and have tears fill your eyes. It's okay to lift holy hands to the Lord. We, we need to be careful of not just associating all signs of emotion as some hyper-charismatic big church cuckoo. Those people exist. But everyone who's passionately in love with Christ is not a cuckoo. What's really cuckoo is not being passionately in love with Christ. So I would just really encourage you that what Paul, the metaphor here, Paul is talking about a deep, abiding, personal, passionate union with Christ. He dwells in our hearts by His Spirit. And so I just want to encourage you in that. In fact, let me end it with this. Uh, Charles Hodge, one of my favorite theologians, said it a lot more eloquently than I can. He doesn't wor use words like cuckoo. So let me quote Hodge. He says, according to the Bible, religion is not a form of feeling to the exclusion of the intellect, nor a form of knowledge to the exclusion of feelings. Christ dwells in the heart in the comprehensive sense of the word. 
He is the source of spiritual life to the whole soul, of spiritual knowledge as well as spiritual affections. Now, while the Spirit allows Christ to access to our hearts, Paul says specifically that what the Spirit must provide to make this happen is faith. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And there's a couple important things to say about faith here as well. First and most importantly, this sort of, in my opinion, vindicates the Reformation doctrine of faith alone. And we saw this in our text last week too. We believe that faith alone is sufficient to forgive us of our sins and make us right with God. And I think we see that proof, there are the proof of that. I think we see the truth of that vindicated here. Because yet again, Paul gives us faith and nothing else. It's faith here and faith is alone here. He gives us faith alone as the instrument that unites us to Christ. Right? Christ is in my heart. How? According to Paul. Through faith. Faith is our access to Christ. Faith is our union to Christ. And salvation is union with Christ. That's how you're saved. By being unified to Christ. So if faith is how we're unified to Christ, then what's the implication? Faith is how you're saved. (laughs) And nothing else. Faith and faith alone is how Christ dwells in our hearts. But there is a more controversial aspect of the Reformation that I also think is somewhat vindicated here. And and that is that we need to uh, resist, many Christians resist the Reformed understanding of God's sovereignty and man's freedom because they really think that the Reformed world sort of compromises the freedom of man's will. And why do they think that? Well, because we say things like, your faith is not ultimately the product of your free will, but something God creates in you. And understandably so, we have brothers and sisters say, that, that sounds like God's just taking away my free will. Now, again, we bring this up a lot. I don't pretend like this isn't nuanced and deep. But I just want to draw us our attention to this. Notice that Paul is praying for God to grant us something. That God would grant us power from the Spirit so that Christ can live in our hearts through faith. So in some way, shape, or form, however we want to slice it and dice it, we can maybe do another day. But it seems as if your faith is something God created in you. You believe in the Lord Jesus. Who do you have to thank for that? You? Or the power of the Spirit? Well, how did you get the power of the Spirit? God granted it. You see, this is why we maintain, we don't deny free, we don't deny human responsibility. We're not saying people can be saved without even knowing they're saved or not believing. There's, There's a human element that we can look at other places in Scripture for. But at least if we just focus on here, Paul is giving a very strong and hard doctrine that your faith is a spirit wrought faith and God sent the Spirit to do that in you. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, I can tell you who to thank. God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who granted you the power that you needed to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by whom you are saved. Now, when you have this faith, this faith alone which saves us, something very important happens. Look with me again. Paul doesn't end his thought there in verse 17. Look at what he says in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And what's the conclusion of that? That you being rooted and grounded in love... Paul continues to use another metaphor, and he's saying that our saving faith roots us and grounds us in love. This means that when we believe in Christ, truly believe in Him, we experience the love of Christ to us 
And then this love then radiates through us to others. So we are just grounded, not in love in any one direction, just, just love. Right? Christ's love and then our fellowly love to our brothers. So the whole Christian experience is just living in love. Love is what has planted you deep in soil. Love is a firm foundation that you stand upon. And this love only comes through Christ. Once Christ dwells in your hearts, then Paul can say, now you are officially rooted and grounded in love. You have a strong foundation to your life, and that is love. God's love for you and your love for men. This is the character of true, spirit-wrought, saving faith. Because you see, we learn in the Bible that there are other kinds of faith that people can have. Faith in God, faith in Jesus. And those faiths can be lost. Jesus talks about this in his parable of the sowers. That there are some seeds that make it in the ground and they begin to sprout, but then they're plucked up or they're dried up or whatever it is. There, you can have a faith that is not grounded, that is not firmly rooted. And Paul doesn't want that for the Ephesians. He wants a faith that grounds them in love. The, the hurricane might uproot all of these other trees, but this tree, is, its, its roots are too wide and too deep. The hurricane cannot take up this tree. That's the kind of faith, saving faith, that Paul wants for his churches. Not a fleeting faith, but a faith so deeply rooted in God's love that it cannot be shaken. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Now, there is one final step that comes to us then. What happens when we have the power of the Spirit? By that power, we then have Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, which then makes us rooted and grounded in love. But what's the final step that we need to become godly? Because we're still not done, according to Paul. He says in verse 18, this then leads to another thing. Verse 18, that you may being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I read 18 and 19 together because I actually believe that they're saying the same thing. Uh, this verse in my studies this week shows this has puzzled scholars quite a bit. Because from one sense, it seems like maybe Paul's talking about two different things, right? Because he says that if you're rooted and grounded in love, you may now have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the, and then they call it the four elements, right? He lists these four elements that we know, the breadth, length, height, and depth. And then it almost seems like he shifts to something else and to know the love of Christ. So it's like we've got to know the four elements and then we've got to know the love of Christ. And you'd be amazed at how many theories there are out there about the four elements. Uh, a lot of scholars tie it to some of the, uh, the Greco-Roman philosophies, and they think Paul's borrowing that, and that's maybe true. But I think the majority of scholars that I read, at least, I really think have it right. I think that the, the four elements are the same thing of the love of Christ. I think he reiterates himself in verse 19. I think what he does is he expresses the love of Christ in sort of metaphoric language in verse 18 to glorify it. And he does that by giving these four elements. This is sort of a poetic way of saying that Christ's love is everywhere. It is height. It is breadth. It is depth. It is width. It's taller than the tallest building. It's deeper than the deepest ocean. It's wider than the widest galaxy. You get the point. And then he goes, moves from that metaphor to be a little bit more specific. Or let me just be very clear with you. To know with all the saints what is the love of Christ that surpasses 
knowledge. I, I really think he might be talking about something different, but I really think he's talking about the same thing here. So in other words, the final step before we can be godly, we need the power of the Spirit. We need faith in Jesus Christ. And then we need to comprehend the love of Christ, which really is the love of God. All throughout Scripture, the Bible uses the term the love of God or the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ is the same thing. To know the love of Christ is to know the love of God because the love of God only comes to you through the love of Christ. We, Paul knows that the last thing we need is we need to have a, a comprehension of just how much God loves you. You need a comprehension of just how much Christ loves you. And notice, he doesn't just say that you would know this, but that you would come to know this with all the saints. It's a beautiful phrase. You see, we come to know the love of Christ most fully in a corporate setting. You do need to know it individually. You need to know it as an individual. But Paul here intentionally brings us back to the church. That the, the fullness of the love of Christ will never be found with you in, on your back porch meditating. It will never be found by just going up on mountain retreats and basking in the glory of God. Those things are good. You should do those things. But the full expression, the full experience of the love of Christ, the full comprehension comes through the church. We obtain it with the saints. We obtain it together. This is why the church is so important. I love one of the scholars I read put it this way, that Paul prays not for some isolated contemplation, but the shared insight gained from the belonging to the community of believers. This is one of the reasons why we at this church don't want to neglect church history. There's a lot of wild things in church history. There's a lot of beliefs in church history that our church doesn't hold. We're not saying church history is infallible. We're not saying everyone who came before us had it all figured out. But the Spirit has been working for 2,000 years. He didn't just start working 500 years ago. We have saints that have lived for 2,000 years and they can help us understand the love of Christ. Last week we read the Nicene Creed. I don't agree with all of the fathers at the Nicene Council on every point of doctrine. The fathers at the Nicene Council probably wouldn't have liked me very much, to be completely honest with you. But I believe that they can really, really help me understand the love of Christ through the Trinity of the Scriptures. I don't know how I would have ever fully understood the Trinity without that council. I'm grateful for those men. I'm grateful for those councils. We're grateful for what the whole body of Christ today and before us has helped the world to see about the rich, deep love of Christ. And notice the love that we corporately as a church come to comprehension of. Paul says is the love of Christ in verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I love Paul's language here. Paul's speaking in what we call a paradox. A paradox is something that appears to be a contradiction, but it actually is not. But Paul does appear to be saying something contradictory. Right? In other words, Paul's prayer is that we will know the love of Christ. Then he qualifies the love of Christ, by the way, which surpasses your understanding. Right? In other words, Paul's saying, I really, every Christian in here, I want you to know the unknowable love of Christ. I want you to comprehend and to know the love of Christ, which cannot be comprehended and cannot be known. 
All right, that's basically what he's saying. The reason I love it here is because it, it makes me feel better. Because in our Wednesday night classes, we're doing the attributes of God. These are big things. And I can't tell you how many times in our Wednesday night class, we've come, no matter what attribute of God we're looking at, we end up coming back to, he's just too big to understand. He's he just, I just, I just can't get him. And, and that makes us feel good because I don't want to worship a God smaller than me. But then as a pastor, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable because then I'm thinking, well, why come to the class then? What, what's the point of doing a class where all you're going to learn is that you can't learn anything? So it's like I, I always wrestle with this tension. Like, yes, God, God is, he's, he's really big and you can't understand him, but we're trying to understand him. So you should still come try to understand him. Like, I feel this tension. And here Paul vindicates it for me. Paul's comfortable with this language. Right? We come to church every Sunday because I want you to know how much Christ loves you. But I also want to qualify it and say you can't know how much Christ loves you. Now, the reason it's not a contradiction is because it's, it's not a direct contradiction. Paul's not saying we can't know anything. But he's saying the love of Christ surpasses understanding. It's not outside of understanding. It just goes beyond it. So you can know something of the love of Christ, that, but it's just an ocean whose depth you can never actually plumb. And this really is what all religious people are trying to do at the end of the day, is know the unknowable. One theologian said the attempt to know the unknowable is a paradox which is at the heart of all true religion. We are seeking to understand something which we can understand, but not fully. We can never fully exhaust it. One of my favorite songs we sing at this church, I promise, and we'll end after this, is uh, we sing the song, uh, Before the Throne of God Above. It's one of my favorite songs ever. But admittedly, I'll fill you in, I do something a little selfish with that song. Because it was written by a 17-year-old girl named Charity Lees Bancroft. But Charity only wrote three verses. We sing four verses. And this happens with hymns. As hymns evolve over time, people add verses and then the good ones stick and the bad ones fall and, and it sort of stands the test of time in that sense. There's a fourth verse that was added to the song that very few people know. I don't even remember how I found it, but somehow I found it and I fell in love with it, so I make you sing it. I just think that fourth verse is so good. And one of my favorite parts of that verse is there's a metaphor in that verse and I just love the metaphor. I think it's so poetic. And in the metaphor, it essentially says that this river's depths I cannot know, but I can glory in its flood. For the Lord Most High has bowed down low and poured on me his glorious love. What's that song saying? It's saying, the love of Christ has been poured on me like a river, and admittedly, it's too deep for me to get to the bottom. I don't know how deep this is. It's a depth that surpasses my understanding. I can't reach the bottom. But what can I do? I can glory in the flood. Right? You don't have to hit the bottom to know you're drowning. We can still experience the love of Christ. We can understand the love of Christ. And we can enjoy the love of Christ. While at the same time realizing his love can never be fully understood or fully enjoyed. It's beyond you. So this is not a true contradiction. But Paul is saying Christ loves you with an infinite love you will never fully understand. But I, the more you understand it, the more holy you can be. The, one of the most important motivations you need to become holy is to have a greater understanding of just how much God loves you in Christ. Almost every time we sin, it is ultimately a reflection that we just don't get how much God loves us. 
how much Christ loves us. So in conclusion, what are the three necessary things we need before we can ever attain the fullness of God? We need strength from the Spirit, faith in Christ, and to know the love of Christ. And with these three things, we can be filled with the fullness of God. And we must seek these things to fuller measure. You see, we all have these things already in some measure. But Paul's prayer is that we would continue to seek them more and more. We want more strength from the Spirit. We want a deeper faith in Christ. We want to understand further the love of Christ. We have these things, but Paul wants us to exhaust them. And as we pursue these things, we will make progress in hoisting the Christian Stanley Cup, which is sanctification, being made like God.